and happy Easter. Tom will be teaching us this morning from the book of Mark. So you can uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 33 through 39. If you're using one of the Bibles from the chair, you'll find that on page 853. Again, we are in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, And gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Will you join me in prayer, please? Father, you are the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And we ask, would you please give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we are called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. According to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead, and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And we praise you for that truth. We thank you, Father, that that is the anchor to our soul. We ask that you would use that truth to increase our love for you. Father, would you... um, Let us take full advantage of the fact that we have fellowship with you again because the veil is torn and we have access to you. That is an incredible privilege. Thank you for it. Use this teaching now to draw us to yourself. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. I'd like to draw your attention this morning to just one verse in the passage that was read to us. And it's the words of verse 38 that say, And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. For 16 verses before this verse, the reader has been on a hillside outside of Jerusalem 
where Jesus hangs on a cross between two thieves. And immediately after this verse, the reader will be returned to the same location. But for this one verse, it's like an abrupt interruption in the narration that takes you into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple. And it's abrupt also because by themselves, these words in their context make no sense. It doesn't tell you why there's a veil or a curtain in the temple and what the significance is of the curtain being torn in the temple. But the first three of the Gospels, usually called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record this event, all of them, in almost exactly the same words. So there must be something very significant about this. Many people think of the four Gospels as a biography of Jesus, and that's true to some degree, but they're not strictly biography. For example, one thing characteristic of the Gospels is they spend one-third of their material on the last seven days of Jesus' life, and no proper biography would do that. Rather, the Gospels are written to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and everything that comes before that event is just preliminary to it. As Jesus said, when he was describing his own mission, he said earlier in the book of Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the passage that was just read to us describes that very point in which Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And so I'd like to suggest that this sentence embedded kind of inexplicably in this paragraph is actually a spectacularly important sentence. Like a magnet draws to itself iron from many different sources and places. In the same way, this verse draws to itself a tremendous amount of the teaching of the Bible. As a result, these words display the Easter message really with profound clarity But to get that clarity, you have to understand, you need to kind of gain an overview of the message of the Bible and see how these things fit into that. The message of the Bible has as its chief component the subject of the relationship between God and human beings. And uh, it answers the question, what does it mean for human beings to have a relationship with God? What does it mean for a person to love God and to be loved by God? And that story unfolds in the Bible in four steps. The first one that we have to consider is what God intended his relationship to human beings to be like from the very beginning. And then after thinking about what he intended it to be, what happened to that relationship? And then in two steps, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, what God did to correct the problem that had entered into the relationship. In other words, these 14 words, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, record an historical event, something that actually happened, that have tremendous symbolic significance. And what I'd like to do for a few minutes is view the Bible's unfolding story from the 30,000-foot level, getting an overview of what is it the message of the Bible is. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Marge, I told you this is a bad day to show up. This guy's going to talk about the whole Bible. And I'm sure you have questions at every point that I'm going to come to. Many of you might think that the Bible is, uh, contains fables or that it's a mixture of truth or 
error and things like that. And there are so many questions that are worthy to ask that surround that. But what I'd like you to do for just a few minutes is set those questions aside and just listen to the Bible's own presentation of its story. I'm not going to have you open the Bible or look at the specific passages. Just listen to it. The Bible, in fact, though we have it bound in one book, was a series of many different books written over 1,500 years by almost 40 different authors. And yet, it claims to tell one overarching story, God's own meta-narrative of his intention for human life and human history. What I'd like to do is start in the first three chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 1 through 3. Those chapters contain and contain and condense form a great deal of information about God's original intention for the human race and what happened to that. What we read there is that God created the first two humans and he placed them in a specific piece of territory in the world, a place called Eden, which is described as kind of a state. It's said to have been in the east, which probably in Genesis means east of Israel, which would have been Mesopotamia in the ancient world or Iraq today. And Eden was a territory, we are told, in which God planted a garden. God planted a garden in Eden, it says in Genesis chapter 2. And that garden we have to think of in terms of the ancient Near Eastern garden of a king. Some of you may have been to Versailles or seen pictures of the garden there that Louis XIV uh, cultivated. And That's not what we're describing. That garden is a walled enclosure in which it is highly cultivated and sculptured so that it it forms the trees and the plants, animals and birds and things. It's meant to awe the senses, and it really does that, but that's not the kind of garden we're talking about. This is a garden that would have been the fruitful and productive land of a king. It would have included the crops from which he drew the food for his own table. And uh, it it was a place in which the wildness of the earth had to some degree been um, cultivated to be a place of beauty, a place of food, a place of peace, a place of rest. The humans were placed in the Garden of Eden as God's representatives. The Bible tells us in its beginning chapters, they were to rule the earth for God, for his glory, and for the good of the other creatures. And so what we read in the first chapter is this, when God imparts to them his intention for human life. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, these first two people were to have children. They were to form a family. Their family was to spread out and eventually over time form other groups that would become groups of families and clans and tribes and eventually whole nations. The human race was designed by God to spread out through the earth. But as they did this, they were to spread human culture and create human culture. But they were to do one other thing. The implication of Genesis is they were to work progressively to do what they did in the garden. They were placed in the garden to serve it and to keep it. And they were to do that throughout the earth so that the whole earth would become a garden. The garden was the place of fellowship with God in which they did these things. And they were to spread throughout the earth to make the whole earth a garden. You might picture the scene that's presented in the terms that I'll show you on the screen. I'll call this original Eden. 
In the original Eden, God's intention was in creating human beings for us to progressively fill the earth as his representatives and to rule for his glory by working in harmony with creation to make the whole earth an Eden. Now, when I say those words, when you hear that, or when you hear the words in Genesis 1 read, I have to make a qualification. Words, phrases like subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth. Many of us would think today, isn't that the problem with human beings? What we've done is we've filled the earth, we've spread throughout the earth, and in the process, we've raped its resources. We've used the creatures purely for our own benefit. We've reduced the wildness to parking lots. But that's because we're thinking about the earth after the event we'll think of next, which is the fall into sin. This was before that. Human beings in their innocence were appointed by God to represent his rule, to live for his glory and in fellowship with him. To subdue the wildness does not mean to turn the earth into a parking lot. It doesn't mean to reduce every acre to cultivation. It doesn't mean to exploit the other creatures for our personal benefit. It describes the process of bringing the wild earth into a state of order and harmony and productiveness and usefulness, which would require leaving some of it in its wild state. That's the commission given to the human race in the beginning. But something happened to that original Eden and we we walked in the garden in fellowship with God. And it changed God's original intention. At least it changed the way in which we carry it out. If the first would be called original Eden, I'd like you to think of this one as fallen Eden. So here's what happened. After humans sinned, we were excluded from fellowship in the garden and our human nature was bent by sin but we are still commanded to rule the earth. Now, what that means is that with all of the freedom that we have been given and the authority and the enjoyment that God had given freely to human beings, he had also given to us one prohibition. In our innocence, we were told not to to eat the fruit of one of the tree, and that is evidently placed in Genesis chapter 2 as a test, a probation, Humans were being tested as their willingness to obey God. Will they trust God or will they seek to find life on their own? Would the original human beings uh, trust God, the creator, or would we set out on a path of self-determination? And as you may know, the story is that at the instigation of the devil, they chose self-reliance. They chose to do the very one thing God told them not to do, to eat the fruit of the tree. They chose in that self-reliance and self-actualization rather than trust in the creator. We are told that the original humans were naked and that their nakedness was connected with no shame. And that tells us something more than just their physical makeup. It tells us that they, uh, their nakedness was a rich and joyful vulnerability to each other. To all of creation, to God himself, they needed no walls, either in the form of something to cover up their physical nakedness, no walls inside, nothing that would cover them internally in the fear of being exploited by someone else. But immediately after their their rebellion, their eating of the fruit, they realized their nakedness, that their nakedness is not a rich and warm vulnerability. It's a painful vulnerability to each other and to God himself. 
So they immediately try to cover it up by making some kind of apron, the word is in the Bible, woven together with leaves. And we are told in Genesis chapter 3 that God came down into the garden to walk with them in fellowship. It's a picture of what it was his custom to do, we gather, to walk with him in fellowship in the garden. And God says plaintively, where are you? But they're, they're not to be found. They've hidden themselves away. And so the consequences flow. There are two specific ways in which the consequences flow on their act of rebellion. The first is this. After the entrance of sin, human nature became bent. That's, I don't know where I got that word from. I read it somewhere. But it is an apt description of what happened to human nature. It's not that our humanity was destroyed by any means, though we might say it lines in ruins, like the ruins of a castle still gain the outset, the outline, I'm sorry, of what the castle was, and yet it's not the reality of it, the fullness of it. We were not destroyed, but our nature was bent. So if you think of an arrow that is just slightly warped, if it's even slightly warped, when the, the archer shoots it, it will always veer off from the target. And that's what we are like in sin. We can still see what is good. We can still acknowledge what the good is. We can even desire it and aim at it. But when we aim at it, like a warped arrow, we will always veer off from the target. Our best efforts will always be twisted away from reaching the good. And why is that? It's because our understanding and our feelings and our efforts are always infected with self-interest. It's it's as though human nature, having selfishly, selfishly chosen to follow the dictates of self rather than God, to choose self-reliance over God-reliance, it's as though having done that in the beginning, we continue to do that steadfastly on the same path. So even though we're still commanded to fill the earth and subdue it, we are no longer able to do that in the way it was intended. We will always stain our best intentions with our own benefit, with our own hope of glory rather than the glory of God and the good of creation. That's the first consequence. Human nature becomes bent, and we all feel it in our relationships with each other. And the second consequence, we are told that God banished the first humans from the garden. In fact, it says specifically they were sent out the east side, and uh, there was put there at the edge of Eden Something very mysterious, these two angelic beings called cherubim, which appear to have been some mysterious creature with a human head, a lion's body, and wings. And these two cherubim are holding a sword that flashes back and forth like lightning. And the idea is that we were banished from the garden, and these two mysterious beings are put there to keep us from going back. In fact, they don't just guard the way to the garden. You might say the cherubim conceal the garden so that we can't find our way or make our way back to that place of fellowship with God. Now, all that takes place in the first three chapters of the Bible. So you might think, Marge, I hope the dinner's going to be all right because this guy's going to be going on the rest of the day. If we go at this rate, I'll try to go a little faster. After the fall, Abraham called one man named, excuse me, God called one man named Abraham, and he gave to him and to his descendants specific promises. 
Over a period of time, he had many descendants who became 12 great tribes. And later, God took these 12 tribes descended from Abraham, and he formed them into one nation that was called the nation of Israel. He gave to them promises and commandments. And he entered into a special kind of relationship with them called a covenant. We don't use that word often anymore, but covenant still describes marriage. It's even written into some of our state laws in some states in the United States. Marriage is a covenant. But a covenant defines a formal relationship between two parties that is somehow more than simply a business arrangement. This formal relationship has responsibilities and promises and requirements, much like marriage would be, you'd think of. God uh, gave to these people this special covenant relationship, and he commanded them in this relationship with him to, to worship him in a specific way. In fact, he gave them detailed instructions. They were to build this massive tent, and he told them the way in which they could approach him in worship. They weren't to make it up on their own. This tent-like structure was originally called the tabernacle, which means large tent. Later, they made that into a permanent location under the same structure, basically, in Jerusalem in what was called the temple. Well, what's important to understand is that this tabernacle, and later the temple, was a symbolic Eden. That's quite clearly when it's read very carefully. It was designed by its very nature, and the worship that went on there to point the way back to the garden. So I'm going to call this the symbolic Eden. Symbolic Eden is what came about in what we call the Old Testament, what Jewish people call the Hebrew Bible, and what is called itself the Old Covenant. It describes the initial covenant between God and his people that was made with Israel. In the symbolic Eden, God instructed his covenant people, Israel, to construct a symbolic Eden in a massive tent temple to show them the only way back to fellowship with God in the garden. This tabernacle was originally built in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula as the people were traveling around in the wilderness. And it was made to be able to be deconstructed, carried in its pieces to a new location, and again set up. It had, as you see in the blue section there, a large, very large courtyard that was made of pillars that could be set up with curtains all the way around that set it off as a distinct location. It was evidently meant to picture Eden, the location. Only the covenant people of God, Israel, could enter the gate on the east side and go in to the earthly Eden. Inside the walled area, there was a huge bronze altar on which sacrifice was offered. And then next to that, on the west side, there was this large tent, the tabernacle proper. And uh, this tent was set up in such a way that it had two rooms. It also had pillars and things that held it together so that it was draped over with animal skins and various kinds of cloths and things to form a tent. But it had two rooms inside. Each of the rooms was curtained off. Now, it's easy when you look at the details to see how the whole structure represented Eden, and I'm just going to give you a few of the details. With the tabernacle functioning as a garden, uh, the place of fellowship. The way in which worship was to be conducted underscores this whole idea. The first room that you would come into is called the holy place. The holy place had a number of things in it. One was a golden lampstand that was about the size of a human being. It had seven large lamps that would have brilliantly lit the room. 
It's important to understand that gold was inlaid all the way around. And in the inlay of the gold, there were figures of gourds, palm trees, and open flowers. Evidently, the image of being in a garden, brilliantly lit by the sun. The candle probably represented the tree of life that was in the garden. And into this room that had a couple of other pieces of furniture... The priests could go, only the priests. The worshipers were not allowed to go. They could only go through a representative, the priest. And he could go in and trim the lamps, burn the incense, replace the bread that was in there, and keep the room in order. That happened every single day. The priests went in and they took care of things and prayed in the holy place. But behind that is a second room, and this one is the most interesting. It uh, was a room behind another very thick curtain, and this was called the most holy place. And unlike the first, it had no light. It would have been very dark. The curtain that barred entrance into this room has two things woven skillfully into it, and that is it had the image of cherubim two of these angelic creatures. Just like barred the way to Eden, they were there inscribed on the curtain. And then inside the room, there was only one piece of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a medium-sized chest covered entirely with gold, with legs that stood. And uh, on top of it, there was a cover made of pure gold, burnished to a high gloss. And at the end, it had two cherubim, again, these angelic creatures, that came out of the top, and they hovered over it with their wings touching. And uh, it was meant to be not a seat, but a footstool, like an ottoman. And the image that the worshipers were to have who understood what was in the most holy place is that God, who is unseen, sits on his throne in heaven, over the heavens and the earth, and his feet rest on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat which is the name of the top that is there. And given, keeping with the form of worship they were given, there was no image of God. You cannot image God, but it, it was understood this is his footstool. It's as though his personal presence on the earth, of all the places it could be, was in this one holy place that God himself had designed for them to set aside. And all these things taken together, and so many more we don't have time to look at, tells you that This whole form of worship was a symbolic Eden. It was like pointing the way back to the garden. Now, into the second room, only one person could go, and he could only go on one day of the year, and that day is Yom Kippur, the highest holy day of the Jewish people. It means day of atonement, occurs in the fall. On that one day, he would make sacrifice at the great bronze altar. He would take in a bowl the blood of the sacrifice, make his way through the holy place, pass the implements that were there, and through the curtain into the most holy place. It was the only day he could go. He had to offer this sacrifice for his own sins as atonement and for the sins of those covenant people who were worshiping him and he could worshiping God and he could go into the most holy place. He would take this blood in a bowl, and he would sprinkle it using a specific kind of tree branch on the mercy seat, the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the lessons offered in this imagery are immense, 
It's picturing the way back to fellowship with God, who is in the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the garden. The way back to fellowship, that fellowship that was originally ours in Eden, could only be experienced on three conditions. The first condition is this. It could only be experienced through a mediator. And that was pictured by the fact that the worshipers couldn't just rush willy-nilly into the presence of God. They weren't allowed to do that. It required someone acting on their behalf to take them to God. It could only come through a representative. Secondly, entrance back into fellowship with God required that a sacrifice be offered. It was only by means of sacrificial blood that the high priest, that one person, was allowed to go one day a year in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And the third thing comes from those two, and that is that this representative and his sacrifice that he brought had to be repeated every single year. And that's why I call this symbolic Eden. The the worship of the tabernacle did not give the fellowship with God that it pictured. It showed them the way back was through a representative, sacrificial blood, but it had to be repeated every year. It was like a signpost in the life of the people of God, this imagery of returning to Eden, the original place of fellowship. It was like a promise that was held up, foreshadowing something that would make it a reality. And that's the story of the Bible in its fourth part. The fourth part is what we find is that God did to restore us from the fall, that banishment from the garden, what he did through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament properly is called the Old Covenant. It describes the covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel. The New Testament, properly speaking, describes the new covenant. That is the covenant that Jesus entered into with his people, which fulfilled everything that the old covenant pointed towards. Now, the words we are exploring today. When Jesus died on the cross, we are told, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What it means is that Jesus came also as a high priest. But in this case, he was the true, not temporary high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was simply a human being. He had his own sin that he had to offer sacrifice for, as well as the sins of the people when he went in to sprinkle the blood. But Jesus, the God-man, had no sin. So he could pay for the sins of others without having to deal with his own sin. Also, being a human being, he could offer a sacrifice that was not simply symbolic, The sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament was clearly symbolic of the shedding of blood on behalf of a human being. But in this case, a human died for us. He could offer the perfect, the final sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what we are told in this passage in Mark is at the very moment that Jesus died, when he breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this can mean only one thing. It evidently means that fellowship with God is again open. That which had been walled off and concealed is now open. For anyone whom Jesus, the high priest, takes by the hand, sprinkles with his own blood, and takes them into the presence of God in the most holy place. In other words, the new covenant tells us that in Jesus, Eden is restored. We could call this the the new Eden or restored Eden. And it looks like this. 
God restores to fellowship all who come to him through Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection has completely removed the barrier between sinful humans and a holy God. So the words that are included in this passage and in the other ones that, that describe the tearing of the veil of the temple, even though they're not explained, they really have to be understood against the foundation of the whole Bible's message. The whole Bible's message about Eden, Eden as God initially meant it to be, as it became after the fall, what God did about it in a symbolic way and what he did about it through Jesus Christ, all of that is like a piece of black velvet on which a diamond shows all of its facets with all of their beauty. And this, these 14 words display all that they mean when they're understood against that background. They point us back to the garden. They point us back to fellowship with God. And they don't just point us back. We'd have to say they call us back. Later in the New Testament, there's a a passage in which the writer, in, in a few words, describes what happened when Jesus died on the cross. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10, and we can look at it together here. Here's what it says in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. These words are like an application of this whole truth, this whole theme that runs through the Bible of Eden. It tells us that on the backdrop of Eden as God initially intended it, the estrangement of sin that was brought about after that with the cherubim forbidding re-entrance to that place of fellowship, the symbolic Eden with the cherubim inscribed on the veil that covered up the most holy place that only the high priest could go through, only one day a year. And Jesus' death, this whole theme is summed up here. And the most important words that are spoken in there are the words, let us draw near. I mean, I suppose without those words, this is kind of a lesson in history or in the rhetorical art of the Bible, which some of us find interesting and other people find incredibly boring. That's all it would be. But with these words, it's more than that. It's an invitation. Let us draw near is God's invitation to us. It says that as we were banished from the garden in Adam, we are now called back to the garden in Christ. Jesus Christ, now raised from the dead, a living Savior, is able to take us by the hand. And he's able to take us past the altar, that is the cross, on which he died, which stood as an altar, like an altar outside of the city of Jerusalem, past that with his own blood. He can take you back through the earthly Eden, restored creation that God is in the process of restoring, past the cherubim-inscribed curtain that is now shredded and in ruins right through the open doorway into the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And, And if he takes you by the hand and he walks you through,
through the earthly Eden, so to speak, into the presence of God, what you will find is not God seated in his heaven, his heavenly throne with his feet resting on the Ark of the Covenant. You will find the living God standing as a father with his arms outstretched to welcome you back into his presence. Let us draw near, he says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What is it? When Christ takes us by the hand, we can either shake that hand off and say, you know, I'm doing pretty well on my own. I've almost made it back there. I've just veered off a little. Or we can allow his hand to grip us and take us into the presence of God by faith. Trust that he is the one who has done all this. And God, by these words, let us draw near, says, take him by faith right now, even today, by trusting him. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God, as we come before you, we thank and praise you that you are a God who has given to us such a story. But it's not just a story that we can read and seek to understand. It's a story that we are called to enter into ourselves. We pray that you would open up each heart, each mind to respond to the invitation that you have given. Let us draw near. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.